to do is say a few words on daily life practice and then uh, open it up so if you have any questions we can cover as much as we can in the, in the limited amount of time that we have. Um, if you can think back to Friday night a week ago, which may seem like a thousand years ago, um, if you recall, uh, one thing that was being suggested is that if you went about your day here that has viewed uh, the practice in a seamless way, no separation, no, no stitching between one activity and another, that all it really is is life all the time. And that sometimes we're in the hall, so we 100% undivided attention to sitting. When we're doing walking, 100 undivided attention to walking. Uh, when we're doing the pots, and so forth. Uh, in this kind of a simplified, protected environment, if you could begin to do that a little bit more, then when the time comes to go home, which is now, then you'll see it is, uh, there isn't so much of a need for uh, integration and all kinds of uh, talks that are trying to now stitch together what you've torn apart in the first place. They needn't have been separated to begin with. If you didn't separate them, then you don't have to integrate them. Um, although there are some adjustments that you have to make because of all the quiet that we've had and so forth. So the, basically, uh, what I have to say about daily life is it's the same as what we've been doing here. It's going to be more complicated. There'll be less sitting, of course. <laughs> and more doing, more talking, and so forth. So the priorities get shifted around. But uh, it's still going to be consciousness. It's still going to be people. Nature is still there. So it's the same world. Uh, sometimes we believe too much in the stage sets that we create, like this one. And then we have to yank ourselves out of it. Uh, a few, uh, a few suggestions, though. Uh, for some, many of you are are new, and so those of you who have been here, uh, been practicing for a while, you've heard this. It's coming out of your ears. I apologize, but maybe you need, we all need to hear it uh, over and over again. When you go home, you won't have, probably won't have, the support of. Uh, that you have here, for your sitting practice, let's say, at, at least. And so it's very, very important, very helpful to set up a daily sitting practice uh, so that you, uh, as best you can, uh, try to set aside some time to sit quietly with yourself each day. I hope you see that not as a luxury item, you know, so that it's the first thing to go when, you, when other things come up. But actually, uh, well, of course, I have a bias. You know, dentists think that teeth is important. I think that uh, meditation is important. But really think about it. If you set aside a certain amount of time each day, just silently be with yourself. Whatever method you are drawn to is fine. They're all uh, designed to help you do that. 
uh, and then spring into action. You know, do what you have to do. But before that, there's something I've noticed over the years. Uh, so a, a precaution that I would give you, suggest. Um, we're very consumer-minded. It's a consumer-mad culture. I mean, we're just consuming all over the place, including this. If you were really drawn to this practice, in other words, you find that this practice is appropriate for you, it may not be forever, but for right now, you found that you're really drawn to this insight meditation, we'll call it that, some version of it, uh, then for goodness sakes, don't go running around trying every conceivable workshop, teacher, practice group, and all the rest of it. Uh, you're never going to get water. You know, there's an old ancient teaching, if you want water, you have to dig a hole in one place. Uh, in Cambridge, if you look at the uh, bulletin boards, you just have endless workshops, training programs, retreats, uh, classes, and all these smiling faces of teachers, you know, just all piled on top of each other. Whoever got there late puts, last puts their face on top of the, the one before. And people's minds have become like that, like bulletin board mind, because they have it all inside. And so if you found something that you think works, even if it's not forever, simplify your life. Just give yourself over to it and really do it. On the other hand, if you haven't, don't uh, assume that you're not cut out for meditation. Uh, you've tried, and all, we're all survivors, right? We got here to the finish line. Uh, but perhaps this isn't your practice. That, you know, it does happen. No, no practice is for everyone. Don't conclude that meditation is not for you. There are many forms of meditation that are suitable for different temperaments. There are many traditions and no tradition and so forth. But if you uh, have some reservations, don't feel that affinity, that it isn't uh, a path with heart for you, that you really haven't connected with it. Then shop. Then go back, go to those bulletin boards and try them out until you find one that it's obvious when you find a path that's right for you, isn't it? I mean, those of you who have been doing this for a while. Uh, so get a daily sitting practice. Um, a few simple uh, suggestions. Again, it's a lot of what we've been saying all week, but I, I'm just going to uh, remind you. Uh, the breath can be very, very helpful, not only on the cushion, but keeping the breath in mind throughout the day uh, can help keep you awake. Uh, it can help um, keep you in the moment. It can also calm you down and give you energy. Uh, there are so many times during the day, which are kind of dead time, in quotes, where we're between things, we're waiting. There's a lot of it, small moments when you can be with the breathing. We had some training this morning. Okay, yeah, yeah. But how did you do? It seemed uh, we have a choice. Sometimes things don't go according to schedule. If you notice, it's not just here. In life, things happen. Um, and you had a choice. You could wait and breathe and be with your impatience, if you had impatience. Hearing your mind, uh, what's taking them so long? Uh, what, do they go to Scotland to get the oats? I mean, we're... Uh, <laughs> 
just some oatmeal, that's all I want. Just what? <laughs> I could have been upstairs, could have made a phone call home, you know, just all the different things the mind goes. So you have a choice of, uh, of breathing and being with what's happening or becoming a nervous wreck. Uh, you know how you handle it this morning, right? But I think, you know, we could feel what was going on for some of you. <laughs> so practice is in those periods. That's practice. Uh, life doesn't always go according to schedule. And there's a lot of time spent waiting for someone to fill out a bill when you purchase something, waiting for a train, waiting for an elevator, waiting for a friend, and so forth. During those moments, uh, just being present, you don't have to close your eyes and look uh, as if you're a big meditator, just uh, you're experiencing the breathing. The beauty of the breathing is that it's always there. And so wherever you go, the breath is there and can be used. It's portable. And you can turn to it, and that can help you stay awake wherever you are. Now, sometimes you can use the breath in almost uh, an exclusive way, as we've done here. Let's say you're waiting for a train, and you have 20 minutes or so. And you can sit in a bench, and most of your attention can be on the breathing, and you can really calm down and become quite clear. Uh, you need a little bit of attention to notice when the train arrives. You know. okay. At other times, the activity calls for your full attention. Someone's speaking to you, you're driving, so don't get absorbed in the breathing at those moments. Uh, rather, let the breath be an adjunct, kind of a, a help you. If it does, and everyone varies on this, some people benefit immensely from keeping the breath in mind a lot throughout the day, some people less, some not at all. The main thing, of course, is to be mindful. And if the breathing, conscious breathing, helps you be mindful, then, then use it. Okay. In um, a nutshell, uh, the principle is something like this. You uh, in the morning, you say, wash up, and if it's a good time to sit, uh, and you sit. How long? I don't know. That's going to be up to you. Uh, at first, people fit sitting in around their schedule. You know, you have an ongoing life, and then you come back from here, and you try to tuck it in here, tuck it in there. But as the practice starts to develop, you start to rearrange your life and your schedule to make sure you protect the sitting. But that's something for you to decide. That's only when the sitting, when you really see how valuable it is. Not because we said so, but because you see it in your own life. Then I think quite naturally you'll want to protect it. So you have an ongoing sitting practice, perhaps in the evening again. Wonderful. Uh, from time to time, I'm assuming that many of you don't live near meditation centers because most people don't. Uh, certainly come back and do retreats at retreat places like this or other retreat places. Um, if you're isolated, set aside uh, maybe a morning a week or an afternoon a week uh, for mindfulness. Just uh, disconnect your phone. Uh, just don't do anything else and set up a little schedule for yourself that's realistic. And just practice. Just do sitting and walking for three hours, two hours, whatever it is. Uh, you'll see it makes a difference. If there are a few people who live near you, uh, sit together once a week. Now, another point that's, uh, I think, really important has to do with the precepts. 
whether you took the precepts or not, I don't feel is all that important. Uh, to me, the precepts are so obvious, it's not particularly Buddhist. What, to not kill, to not lie, to not steal, to not misuse sexual energy, to not, uh, what are the other ones? <laughs> cloud your, <laughs> cloud your mind. <laughs> What? Yeah. Is that uh, particularly Buddhist? I mean, it's just sanity. Uh, it's, it's just civilization. So if you don't want to take the precepts, don't, but follow them anyway. Um, in our practice, the precepts are not uh, meant to be uh, edicts or commandments that you follow because some authority told you. It's not coming down from higher headquarters. It's a, a guide for you to practice, and it's a way, it's really another way to practice mindfulness and wisdom. It's to protect us. Our, in quotes, natural tendencies are such that we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Uh, we hurt each other a lot. As you, the human race, we don't know how to live together. That's painfully obvious. And we need help. Uh, that's why the precepts are there. If we uh, were, uh, if our ethical development were uh, much more stable, why would we need precepts? We would just be kind. Basically, it all amounts to that. Okay? But we're not. Uh, we're very easily uh, sucked into things and do all kinds of stupid things, and we hurt each other a lot. So the precepts not only protects us from actions that then bring pain to us, but it also, of course, protects all those people who are in our life who will suffer because uh, we don't know how to act. So mindfulness is very important here because unless you pay attention, so I mean, it's not just obedience. The precepts are sort of uh, guidelines pointing to uh, ways to be alert, to notice the uh, significance of what you're doing. So you have to pay attention in daily life. It's not mechanical. It's quite a, a practice. You have to notice the implications of what you're saying and what you're doing. You have to hear yourself. And that's an ongoing lifetime um, learning that goes on. In this sense, the practice is really about looking and listening and learning. In other words, you pay attention and you're willing to learn and the great teacher is life itself. Life is constantly teaching us. And we have to uh, receive the teachings. So self-knowledge is inescapable. But you will, that's how you learn. You learn by doing foolish things. Wisdom grows out of the foolishness. So we need foolishness. If you want to be wise, how can we get there unless we make fools out of ourselves? I'm a little delirious from all these, from the whole week of... Okay. Um, so soon, um, the retreat will be over, and it's time to exhale the retreat. That it's, it's over. Lay it to rest. Of course, you may want to talk about it when you get home and so forth. But uh, lay it to rest in a deep way so that you can inhale what's next, your family, work situation, wherever you're going to from here, the airport. Uh, and the practice is constantly doing that. You wake up and you do sitting, 
pour your whole being into it. Give yourself over to the sitting. When the sitting ends and it's time for breakfast, give yourself over to breakfast. When breakfast ends and it's time to uh, get into your car and drive to work, give yourself over to that. So that it's uh, all day long, you're exhaling and inhaling. You're uh, fully acting wholeheartedly and then letting it go. And then fully acting and wholeheartedly and then letting it go. It's a wonderful way to live. Uh, it just means it's an encouragement to be as alive as you can from moment to moment. And of course, most of the time we uh, fall into unawareness. We don't remember to practice. The instructions are not complicated. It's just we forget to do them so much. All of us do. Okay, you've been unaware for the last five hours. You just start over again. And the teaching of the way it is that you've been hearing a lot for these 10 days, that is, uh, so much of the emphasis in our practice is on being with what is. How is it right now, factually, actually, how is it? And then the mind is always how it should be, how it used to be, how it might be. And that gap is often suffering. So more and more, start being attuned to how it is for you. For example, soon you'll be leaving here. Some of you will be getting into cars, some of We'll all probably be getting into cars. Some will be driving home, those of us in the Boston area. Some of you will be driving to an airport or a bus terminal or wherever. Uh, you may notice that as you leave the center, let's say you're driving, as you leave the center, as the mileage starts ticking off, you know, more and more miles, the samadhi mileage starts going negatively. <laughs> it starts going worse and worse and worse. So the closer you get to Boston, the less of your hard-earned samadhi that you have. And then you get angry, you know, sort of like, that was a complete waste of time, all that hard work, and now it's all out of the window. It's not quite true. It doesn't go that way. But here's the point. If you are in the midst of your experience and you just watch your samadhi just starting to fall away, and that's what is, right? Fine, beautiful practice. Do you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> okay. It's what, like when you want a good sitting. People will come into interviews. I didn't have, uh, I'm, not have, I'm not having a good sitting. But if the sitting is restless and you're angry or you're frightened or you're lonely, but you're right there with it, that's good practice. We tend to think that a result, I have to be peaceful and calm. If I get that, then it's good practice. Anyone can be okay when that happens. That's not much of an achievement. <laughs> It's when you're miserable that it counts, that you can really be, be right there with it. And so, so what if you wasted 10 days here? <laughs> okay. So, you know, the details are endless. We, we don't have time for them. The principles are really simple. If you're in a relationship, pay attention. Learn how to listen. Hear what comes out of your mouth. Uh, start to, uh, to bring the practice into that relationship. The relationship will teach you trem tremendously. It's obviously very challenging and a great teacher. By relationship, I mean any relationship. But in order to learn, you have to be willing to. You have to be willing to turn towards what's happening to you. 
And so it's the same principle that we've been talking about all week. It's just that in many ways more challenging because this is an uh, intentionally devised form to protect us and to help us uh, learn. And now we won't have that protection. Just the opposite. It's like society's been designed to destroy meditators. <laughs> Just uh, everything it does is to undermine whatever we've been doing here. Uh, and that's also, if you see it uh, in a certain way, that's how we, that's its power for us. It's valuable. You, we always turn a bad situation into a good one. That's the, the art of, of Dharma living. It's the art of living, that no matter what happens to you, you land on your feet. Now, you won't, of course, but we're learning that art. How can we do that? Step number one, we have to be in touch with actually the way it is. And then from there, uh, all kinds of possibilities uh, emerge. Okay, any questions on your mind? Please. Okay. Okay, if you have more of a political bent, that's a good way to. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A couple of questions. One very practical. How, how, what's a good way to time your sit? How what? What's a good way to time your sit? Because uh, I find that when I, you know, have a clock and I, I'm a glancer, you know, yeah. it messes with my samadhi. And secondly. Um, well, wait, wait, one question at a time, please. Uh, the ancient way was to use incense to time it, so when the stick of incense burns down. But um, you're going to need something if, so that it, uh, I can't think of too many things. Let's say you use a timer, okay? And your tendency is to peak? Yeah. But I mean, it was, an alarm would go off, right? No, just, just a regular clock. Well, why not get an alarm then? Then you don't have to peak. The sound of beep, like the beep, 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 beep is not a good sound. So then get what clock that doesn't do beep, 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 beep. beep. <laughs> If what? The four foundations of mindfulness. I was wondering if you could say something about the difference between body and feelings. Yes. And also about how to recognize a mind state. But, you know, okay, this is, uh, of course it can be construed as daily life, but um, uh, the, you see, they're all happening at the same time. All, the fo- all four foundations. It's only in teaching that we separate them and make them neat and tidy. Uh, your body right now, let's say you have um, you, the, the body, uh, you can feel a certain um, energy in the body. You feel, let's say, a part of your body is, hurts. Let's say your liver hurts. Okay. And uh, there's a certain something that you can feel in the area of the liver. Uh, it's both um, the, that part of the body is uh, through pressure, softness, hardness, in other words, very fundamental human qualities. You could probably devise another language for it. I have to use words. Uh, so we'll have that, and it will also feel, that part will feel unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral, and then the mind will, right at that moment, be reacting to it. 
it'll start worrying about what happened. What does this mean? Uh, am I, have I been eating too much rich food or whatever it is? Uh, so in that given moment, body, feeling, mind, they're all at once. Does that make any sense? How do you recognize the mind state? That's, uh, do you, that's a very important one. It's a kind of insight to be able to tell the difference between mind and body. When you have pain in your knee, did you have any pain in your body during the retreat? Mm-hmm. Okay, which part particularly? Knees. Okay, so there's throb, 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 right? Okay, first of all, there's the knee. Okay, so that's body. Now, sometimes the knee will be, feel good, sometimes it won't. When it feels good, that's a pleasant feeling. When it feels bad, it's an unpleasant feeling. When it's neutral, it's a neutral feeling. So far, so good? Okay. And then, uh, but won't your mind make up stories about what's happening to the knee? Like uh, a scenario that I'm hurting myself, or when is that bell going to ring? Or can you think back, didn't your mind have uh, a reaction to what was happening to the knee? Right. That's the mind. And how to take the mind's reaction and from that place identify a particular mind state versus just being in the story of the throbbing yeah. of the bell ringing or, you know. It's the difference between being uh, frightened and aware that you're frightened. It's the difference between being angry and aware that you're angry. <laughs> Is that now? If you're saying that's hard to do, that you tend to get lost. Sure, but it can be learned. In principle, it's not different than being mindful of the breathing, or mindful of anything else of a, a sound. It's a, this is a much more subtle object, and it's very compelling. We tend to identify with emotions, for example, and it's very hard to believe that we're not them, because the identification is so strong. And this can, I'm trying to keep it in daily life. You can learn these things. They're not limited to the cushion. You can, you can see what's happening to you throughout the day if you pay attention. Does that make any sense? Yeah, thank you. Yes. Please. How practical is it, for example, say you're home reading the newspaper, mm-hmm. to really try to, to be aware that you're reading the newspaper? No, just read. Just read, yeah. When it's time to fill out your income tax, just fill out your income tax. That means you have to use thinking. Then really use thinking. But people will do income tax and they don't like to do it, let's say, so part of their mind is on what they're going to do after they finish filling out the form. I'm thinking myself. I hate it. Yeah. There, there is a subtle difference, sure. But what I'm getting at is, as long as the particular, uh, let's say if it's reading that you're doing, that you're right there with the reading and you're not distracted. Yeah. It's a very uh, good question you're asking. It's quite tricky. For example, uh, uh, Anagarika Munindra, who's uh, an Indian teacher who's uh, taught many of us here, when he first came from India, he had never been to a movie. And I had the uh, both the, the joy and hilarity and, uh, of going with him to his first movie, myself and a few other people. And he went in, it was the first time he'd ever seen it, and he came out and he was confused. He was saying, like, what's all the fuss? Why do people like this? So well, what do you mean? He said, well, all it was for him was uh, sitting in a dark room, you know, with uh, something flashed on the screen. He was totally aware that he was in a chair, 
Uh, in other words, he was so uh, following this practice that the illusion that film is designed to create didn't work. <laughs> There's more to it. There's more to it. Uh, about six months or so later, we went to another movie together. This was a war film. Okay. And we were watching this war film and uh, something about World War II. And we came out and Manindra was very sad. And we said, what's wrong? And he said like, oh, those poor people, you know, they all got killed and all that suffering. And you know? I said, Manindra, it was just a movie. You know, he had finally... <laughs> We, uh, the culture had succeeded in sucking him in. So I think you do need a certain amount of illusion to enjoy a movie. Yeah. That's why I go a lot. <laughs> yeah. Please. Uh, samadhi is my focusing on my breath. I focus on shoveling dirt. When you... What? I focus on shoveling dirt. still be practicing. Yes. Samadhi is, uh, there's samadhi, the one form of samadhi that we've been doing is uh, uh, just in the sitting with the breathing. But samadhi is meant to be brought into action. For example, when we say do something wholeheartedly un, in an undivided way, that you're developing samadhi. So that the concentration is now more pliable. With practice, it becomes not only steady but pliable, so as you shift from one activity to another, that steadiness moves with you in a very graceful way. But yes, it's meant to be used in shoveling. Yeah. Um, do you know the meditations that you and Michael did are the helps that you gave us while we were meditating? Some of those phrase-guided stuff? Yeah. Did that make it on the, This is grasping mine, asking yeah. this question. Yeah. Did it make it on the tapes? Um, we didn't tape any of them. They just, I just made them up. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just, but it, the point is, for you, you won't need them. Yeah. It's, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Please. There's a technique for developing loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Metta. Yes. Uh, concentration. Is there a technique for discipline? Maybe a certain. All the techniques need discipline. Or is there a certain, you know, a, a certain developing. The military. <laughs> <laughs> Join the army. <laughs> you already did that. He's been in the Air Corps. Personal joke. Uh, in order to do any of these methods, um, See, discipline is an interesting word because what do you, when you say discipline, what do you mean? The ability to cope with, to cope with whatever, you know, like yeah. whatever maybe. Okay, to really, okay. Um, some people would take discipline to be able, let's say, to get up at the same time. You know, what we've been doing here. It's one kind of discipline. It's, and in the military is, you know, it's all, you know it, right? Okay. So uh, you do something you do what you're told and you're precise in following instructions. That's one kind of discipline. Uh, and that has some value, but uh, in my own, my own feeling, and perhaps you too, it's uh, overestimated because there's another kind of... In our work, the most important discipline is the willingness to stay open to yourself throughout the whole day, to learn. 
It's not getting up at the same time. You can follow fixed schedules for the rest of your life and not be any of the wiser. You'll just be a very disciplined fool. <laughs> in other words, the discipline has to be in the service of learning and insight and understanding. So to me, the most refined, highest discipline is not getting up at a certain time or sitting for a certain length of time or doing anything in a regular way, although that's very, very helpful. Uh, it's more a commitment to staying open to your experience from moment to moment. But all the different techniques are ways of developing discipline. In other words, you couldn't do them unless you applied yourself, unless you uh, had some commitment to them, some faith that they might help you to begin with, uh, and the discipline would grow out of it. So if you do metta or if you do following the breath, isn't as important as uh, your commitment to the particular technique. And then that commitment will uh, enable you to grow in, in being a, a more disciplined person. Present and, and in the process, you left your emotions behind. Right, because if they really were connected with the thought. Yes, but uh, let me uh, let me see if I understand you. See, there are a number of things you could have done. Uh, let's say you're doing the walking and you have a certain thought, and then you start to cry. Okay, now in the process of resuming walking what you're doing is taking your attention away from where you were and you're becoming absorbed in walking again. So in the process of becoming, it's something like this, a child is mischievous, right? Naughty. Give it a toy, it becomes absorbed in it and then it's not naughty anymore until it gets bored with it, then it starts being naughty again. So, you, for example, it's an interesting way to look at practice. In Thailand, sometimes what they'll have, you have a walking path back and forth, but they'll have a little platform with a tin roof right next to the walking path. Uh, not everyone gets one of those, but there are some. And that's for sometimes you're doing the walking and something comes up that's really profound. Stop walking and you, you, they don't even want you to uh, interrupt it or short circuit what's going on by climbing up to your, where you live, it's on the second store. They, they're raised because of the rain, rainy season. And so it's just uh, a few seconds away from you. You just go right into the sitting so that you can go deeply into, in this case, uh, the particular emotion. You would drop the walking. Do, do you see what I'm getting? I'm not, now, I'm not, I don't want to make that into a formula. You have to learn how to work artfully. 
but what you did sounds like, um, but it's like by switching to the walking, you took the energy out of what was happening and you became absorbed in the walking. And then, of course, the other started to lose its power. That's, uh, you can become so absorbed in, the, in the whatever object that you can undergo an operation and it's like an anesthetic. There was a recorded case in one French medical journal. During uh, World War II, there was an Indian who was in Paris who had a, an emergency appendectomy operation and there was no, nothing to, no anesthesia. So he said, uh, how long will this operation take? And they told him about a half an hour. He took a picture of his guru uh, and he used that to become absorbed. Doesn't have to be the breath. And he went completely into a very deep state of samadhi. And they, the operation took less time and he was still out. And he was still very, very concentrated. Now that's so that what you're doing is you become absorbed in something else. So you're not, uh, you don't, you're not in touch with the physical pain or the emotional pain. And then it kind of wears out. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. You know, one thing the Buddha did, uh, he had a, um, a, a principle that he put into effect. Like uh, any time, um, this is in regard to fear, we didn't cover this the other evening. Any time he came upon any strong fear, he would not change his posture. In other words, he would continue to meditate on that fear in whatever posture he was in. If he was walking, he would continue to stay with it. It's a little different twist on this. Probably not so much walking, but you know, if he was standing or lying down, because he didn't want to change the posture, because in the process he might have short-circuited it. So he would, he'd continue doing whatever it was he was doing in order to penetrate deeply into it. Find out. No, let life teach you. Uh, find out what that means. In other words, you're going to see into the nature of what it is. I'm missing that piece. If I were in this person's, when, when yeah. that experience happened to me, yeah. I went to that weeping and just stayed there. Mm-hmm. And what happened? Uh, it finished. Yeah, I so it's impermanent. Yeah. Okay, no, fine. But look, um, if you view it from the point of view of practice, when I say go deeply into, it means you see more clearly that it's impermanent and that it lacks self. Then that would free you from the attachment to it and enable you to go deeper inside. This is an interior journey. It's not only, uh, but... Uh, right now we're caught on the surface of consciousness because we get so caught in all these things, like and dislike. Okay? So as you are able to observe something and you go deeply into it, you see its true nature. And uh, Now if you want to understand it on its content level, which I sense that you, you do, that's more of a psychotherapeutic mode, not also valuable. But also you learn about it in this too. It's not that we don't want to learn these things. You learn a lot uh, that people would call psychotherapy in doing this practice too, don't you? I mean, it just comes. Don't you get just an ordinary sense, begin to understand certain of your motives and why you're doing things and etc. So that's part of the practice. But 
insight meditation has a much more specific meaning in addition to whatever else you learn about yourself, self-knowledge. It's a seeing into the nature of all formations. And you'd see that whatever that emotion was, it was impermanent and it lacked self, which would take you deeper into yourself. Now, if your goal is to be a well-adjusted person, see, there's a dimension to this, that why is this a spiritual path? It's not just psychological well-adjustment or to be a, a happier person, although that, of course, is very, very important. Uh, it's this, what is this stuff that we hear about, enlightenment, about awakening? It's another dimension. Okay. Uh, if you're caught on all of your stuff, you're not going to taste that dimension, because all the energy is caught there. So the penetration uh, enables you to go deeper into what it was you were crying about, or what your emotion was. Now, in the process, you can also learn what it is, but there's a, another kind of learning which most people are not interested in. Who cares if it's impermanent and it's not self? But if you're on, on this path, we're strange. We are interested in it. <laughs> For one thing, uh, that's exactly what keeps the illusion of a self alive. Now, maybe you, want to, you, you don't want to let that illusion go. It's a free country, whatever you want. Do you know what I'm trying to say? You don't have a look as, I don't feel we're connecting. Yeah, yeah. Let's try again. Are you elsewhere that I, did it stimulate, this is for learning, did it stimulate you to start thinking about something else? No. Okay, so w what's going on? Seeing more clearly. In this, my experience, this is my first, uh, in retreat, is that what I learned, I learned more by feeling than by thinking. I'm not talking about thinking at all. I understand that. So, when you say, when you use the word, in my profession I do a lot of thinking. Mm -hmm. When you uh, use the word "go deeper," mm -hmm. it has it has no meaning. Mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, uh, so I try to grasp what does that feel like. In these nine days, what I've learned, I've learned by just be, mm -hmm. uh, and, and later I'll write what that means. So, what is it that that word means to you? Because that's a, a, a word is the thinking term. Okay, I'll try to make it more uh, graphic. It, I, I understand. Yeah, how about if I use clearer? If things be, look, let's try it this way. I, I hope this does it. This okay. Okay. Now, you're, you and I are carrying it, and supposing I never heard of eyeglasses. I mean, I come from, some, from the moon, and here I am, and I, I see the, what is it, orange and white, and you kind of have this kind of thing, I guess, a head, <laughs> right? And then there's, your sleeves are kind of orange, too, and your pants are what, kind of reddish? So I see that, but you have to understand, it's very, very blurred. Do you believe me? Okay, so, but I'm, now if I didn't know any better, I really think I'm seeing you.
I'm seeing the death side. Then someone says, hey, try these on. Oh, okay. Whoa. It's, it's much clearer. So that I, I now can see detailed, you know, it's a whole different thing. So as the mind becomes clearer, the same you is going to be seen in a way that is incomparable. That's the whole point. What frees us here is seeing, not trying to get free. You know, trying to struggle to get free is like a, a mouse on, what a, not a mouse, the flies on flypaper. They tear their wings. We're not, it's the seeing that frees us. Seeing here is also understanding, but it's not intellectual understanding. It's a deep seeing into our own nature. So that's what I meant by deep, but clear may be better. I mean it as a synonym. Does that help? You're a tough cookie, okay. <laughs> I, I think so. To go back yeah. to my experience, with, uh, I was walking. Almost suddenly, I was in a place where I was weeping. Mm -hmm. I stayed in that place, not really focusing on why it was that I was weeping, although those, those feelings were familiar, and just finished there. And then went, oh my God, I've been weeping. And then went back to walking, realizing, well, this may happen again. This has happened before. Yeah. Uh, that's as close as I can get to what feels like the insight of the clarity that you're talking about, which is that this is, this is really quite transient. It's very real, but it's quite transient. Yes, but that's part of what we have to learn. Yeah, but um, you use the phrase, I hope I'm getting it correctly. Uh, I saw why it was there. It's not so much, I think you said that. Uh, it's not so much why, it's what is this? The, the quality of our looking is not a figuring out kind of, we're not trying to puzzle it out and analyze it. It's uh, whatever that was, I'm not going to even name it. Obviously it was in your body too, right? And there was, was there some idea first? Some notion first? Okay, whatever, something stimulated it, right? Something happened. Okay. It's there, all right? Okay. okay. It doesn't, you'll have to find this out from your own practice. It didn't drop from the sky. Uh, something uh, came before it, which was a prelude to it coming there. But now it's there. That's enough. We don't need to know the rest. The practice is totally attending to what's there. Now, if you're very, very new and starting to practice, what you're attending to will be very different than somebody who's been practicing for 25 years. What they're going to see. It's the same. Do you see? That's what I meant by the eyeglasses. Uh, for one thing, the, look, the first kind of looking will have a lot of self in it. It'll be, I'm looking at me weeping. Whether you know it or not, there's uh, an investment, an involvement, a concern, a liking, a disliking. With practice, it becomes very, very clear seeing. There's no, you're, you're not seeing through the eyes of the past, which is basically who you are. You know, it's, that's all in the brain. And when we look, we're seeing it through our conditioning, through our, what our life has been so far. The mind can become clear and it can see with present eyes rather than yesterday's eyes. So that it, uh, it's again, I, th I think the image of the glasses is the best I can do and I'll just leave it at that, yeah. Uh, what about daily life? Don't you have a daily life? 
I'm so sorry if you don't. You know? Isn't there a phrase in the culture, get a life? Maybe it should be get a daily life. Maybe you're better off. I don't know if you don't have a daily life. What? Yeah. Anything else? Please. Um, the more I practice, the more I see that um, what I do to earn money is very slight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I always hear, and I see where people at a certain point tend to leave and centers or live other types of ways of making a life. Mm-hmm. So what um, kind of I understand. advice well, I understand. Um, for those of us who continue to function in the poison yeah. um, which is many of us. Which is most of us. Most of us. Yes. No, it's a very big one. In the, uh, in the Buddha's teaching, right livelihood is a major part of the path. Why don't we finish with this? Uh, I'll say a few things about right livelihood. Um, the guidelines are to take work. Uh, obviously, it would be good to have work that you love, that's meaningful to you. Uh, but also, in addition to that, uh, it should not be harmful to others. I mean, if you love being a hitman, that wouldn't be right livelihood. Okay. Um, there's even a, a word for it, mitra samadhi, which means wrong samadhi, because you can be very concentrated, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so that's always an issue, uh, to try to find work that is... Um, that enables you to flower as a person, uh, but it's also it's not at other people's expense. Okay. Now the issues of when you're doing work, uh, it's not so cut and dried sometimes because we're all we're in a world and uh, people have standards of purity, uh, which sometimes are unrealistic because everything is interrelated. But you have to do the best you can, and you have to take a hard look. Sometimes it means leaving the work you're doing. It does, and that can be a difficult decision. Uh, but I think what you're getting at is where most often we find ourselves uh, in work that is not exactly perfect, but yet uh, we have five children and we have to pay the bills, or we have this or that. Um, one thing that the practice, uh, and this I've had a fair amount of experience with, is you can reinvent the job from the inside. Uh, and it can be done. I've seen people do it. I'll give you a few examples. One um, was someone who was, uh, this is very common in Cambridge, someone who was working as a waiter. And um, I got to know him. He would come to the center. And what he said was he was really a playwright. 
okay? But he'd been working as a waiter. And when we would talk sometimes, he would always put that down. Oh, I gotta go into work today. I just hate being a waiter. You know, and very condescending or frustrated and so forth. And often dropping that he was working on a new play and he was really a playwright. I don't remember the exact, but I asked him, how long have you been a waiter? So he, he said something, uh, I don't know, something like, oh, 12 or 13 years. I said, you're not a playwright, you're a waiter. <laughs> Who likes to write plays? Okay. Okay. Um, the point is, the way he was looking at it uh, had all kinds of self in it. It had... The self as the playwright, of course, is wonderful. You know, it's an ideal people. He had respect for it. Being a waiter was menial. He came from an educated background and so forth. So through the practice, what he was able to do to make it shorter, he was able to begin to see that if he could look at the very same job but with fresh eyes, uh, he could see that, for example, people come to eat, they're often lonely, and uh, if you treat them in a nice way, greet them and are friendly and give them good service, you're actually helping them to feel better. Sometimes it's the, uh, the most exciting time in the day. People will come to meet good friends or couples or whatever it is. So it actually can be quite a useful job. Uh, but it requires uh, letting go of this comparative frame of reference that you've gotten from society but that you've taken on and which you're uh, suffering very much as a result because you, you've made self out of being a waiter. And since you don't value being a waiter, then it's a low uh, estimation. If you were a playwright, then you'd be up here. But it'll go on for the rest of your life. They love your play, you're up here. It gets panned, you're down there. Okay. So we are, and also one person, same thing with driving a cab. Very same thing. Uh, another person, this is uh, a story that I think is quite remarkable, was a labor organizer, and he came to the, to, to the center uh, very, very depressed. He was a, was a communist, a socialist, a Marxist. He went through all the different shadings of it uh, and had been a labor organizer and a successful one for almost 20 years. And his job was based on getting workers worked up, you know, angry so that they could make demands on management and then he would, so part of his job, he had a lot of anger. This is him telling me this. I didn't know him. And he used that anger to help other people get angry, workers. So that was part of the fuel in order, that was his job. And he just hated it and he was starting to meditate it and he was getting very, very deeply into it. He still is, he's quite committed to it. And his, his whole character started to just decompose. I mean, happily for him. He was, but then it, the implications of it is that what do I do for work now? Because I can't. So then the question became, is the only way to be a labor organizer is to get people angry? Is that the only way to accomplish this? And it came out of a, a dialogue over many, actually many months. And what came out of it was an, an, a kind of Gandhian labor organizers. Is it possible to not discredit anyone, to have respect for management, to have respect for the workers, to objectively uh, examine the conditions and see where there was need for improvement, whether it's salary or working conditions or health benefits, and to be able to present it to management 
without uh, ins insulting them. To be able to talk to workers in such a way, to, in a sense, to re-educate re them. And in order to do that, of course, he would have to change dramatically, which he was well on the way to doing. And he was able to do it. Uh, and I don't fully know where he is now, but there was one uh, very successful negotiation that he completed where he was, he said, as he, in his words, he behaved like a gentleman and brought everyone uh, to communicate back and forth, and the workers got what they wanted. And management, at least two of the people from management were so impressed that they wanted to know if they could come to the party that they had about the, the, when they signed the contract. Uh, so, I mean, this sounds like a Hollywood ending, I know. He's probably in, he's probably in prison now. I don't know what... <laughs> he couldn't keep it up, you know. Just <laughs> Tell him to do one more retreat. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so it's really up to your ingenuity. There's a kind of um, social virtuosity that can come out of, out of awareness, where you begin to understand yourself better. It's not manipulation. And you begin to understand people better, and there are many more ways of living that we've never dreamed of because we're basically living out an old pattern that we've been conditioned into. And once you start weakening the condition, you make room at least for the possibility of new ways of living. You know, whether, that, whether you take advantage of that or not, it's up to each one of us. Okay, it's um, been uh, a good week. I mean, I think we've all worked hard. I know we've all worked hard. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.